Pod Bless Robert Muller, a translation for Texans, brought to you by the creators of Pod Bless Texas, featuring Lillian Salerno and Kendall Scudder. Well, hello. Welcome to part nine, the thrilling finale. This is it, right? I think this is it. I, I Surely we can get this done in two more hours. Yeah, two more hours. <laughs> Let's do it. This is, I want to know how it ends. I don't think we're going to find out how it ends. Until somewhere around 2022. What's so funny to me is like reading all the annotations at the bottom where these citing sources. It's like put all of Donald Trump's, basically Donald Trump's entire Twitter account listed and the I things know. at the bottom. Remember at South by Southwest, they had that uh, exhibit with all of his Twitter on the no, wall. Yeah. I missed that. Yeah. Anyway, so. Sounds and I like also. Garbage. And I, and I just. All the um, phone records, when he, then they go over, yeah. it's like 20 minutes, 30 minutes. I mean, wow. Trash. Total. Okay, guys. Wrapping this shit up. <laughs> Here we it. go. We are starting at section two. Hang on. Let me go back to this table of contents. We're in section two, K5. Number five. The president's conduct after Cohen began cooperating with the government. On July 2nd, 2018, ABC News reported based on an exclusive interview with Cohen that Cohen strongly signaled his willingness to cooperate with special counsel Robert Mueller and federal prosecutors in the Southern District of New York, even if that puts President Trump in jeopardy. That week, the media reported that Cohen had added an attorney to his legal team who previously had worked as a legal advisor to President Bill Clinton. Beginning on July 20, 2018, the media reported on the existence of a recording Cohen had made of a conversation he had with candidate Trump about a payment made to a second woman who had said that she had an affair with Trump. On July 21, 2018, the president responded, Inconceivable that the government would break into a lawyer's office early in the morning. Almost unheard of. Even more inconceivable that that lawyer would tape a client. Totally unheard of and perhaps illegal. The good news is that your favorite president, me, Donald Trump, did nothing wrong. On July 27, 2018, after the media reported that Cohen was willing to inform investigators that Donald Trump Jr. told his father about the June 9, 2016 meeting to get dirt on Hillary Clinton, the president tweeted, So the fake news doesn't waste my time with dumb questions. No, I did not know about the meeting with my son, Don Jr. Sounds to me like someone is trying to make up stories in, other, in order to get himself out of an unrelated jam. Taxi cabs, maybe. He even retained Bill and Crooked Hillary's lawyer, Crooked Hillary. Gee, I wonder what they helped him make the choice. On August 21st, 2018, Cohen pleaded guilty in the Southern District of New York to eight felony charges, including two counts of campaign finance violations based on the payments he made during the final weeks of the campaign to women who said they had affairs with the president. During the plea hearing, Cohen stated that he worked at the, discre- at the direction of the president in making those payments. 
The next day, the president contrasted Cohen's cooperation with Manafort's refusal to cooperate, tweeting, I feel very badly for Paul Manafort and his wonderful family. Justice took 12-year-old tax case, among other things, applied tremendous pressure on him, and unlike Michael Cohen, he refused to break, make up stories in order to get a deal. So much respect for a brave man. On September 17, 2018, this office submitted written questions to the president that included questions about Trump Tower Moscow project and attached Cohen's written statement to Congress and the letter of intent signed by the president. Among other issues, the questions asked the president to describe the timing and substance of discussions that he had with Cohen about the project, whether they discussed a potential trip to Russia, and whether the president at any time directed or suggested the discussions about Trump Moscow project should cease, whether the president was informed at any time that the project had been abandoned. On November 20, 2018, the president submitted written responses that did not answer those questions about Trump Tower Moscow directly and did not provide any information about the timing of the candidate's discussions with Cohen about the project or whether he participated in any discussions about the project being abandoned or no longer pursued. Instead, the president's answers stated in relevant part, I had a few conversations with with Mr. Cohen on this subject. As I recall, they were brief and they did not they were not memorable. I was not enthused about the proposal and I do not recall any discussion of travel to Russia in connection with it. I do not remember discussing it with anyone else at the Trump organization, although it is possible. I do not recall being aware at any time of any communications between Mr. Cohen and Felix Sater and any Russian government official regarding the letter of intent. On November 29, 2018, Cohen pleaded guilty to making false statements to Congress based on his statements about the Trump Tower Moscow project. In a plea agreement with his off with this office, Cohen agreed to provide truthful information regarding any and all matters as to which this office deems relevant. Later on November 29th, after Cohen's guilty plea had become public, the president spoke to reporters about the Trump Tower Moscow project, saying, I decided not to do the project. I decided ultimately just not to do it. We, there would have been nothing wrong if I did, uh, decided to do it. If I did do it, there would have been nothing wrong. But that was my business. It was an option that I decided to do. I decided not to do it. The primary reason I was focused on running for president against crooked Hillary. I was running my business while I was campaigning. There was a good chance that I wouldn't have won, in which case I would have gone back to the business. And why should I lose lots of opportunities? The president also said that Cohen was a weak person, and by being weak, unlike other people that you watch, he is a weak person. And what he's trying to do is get a reduced sentence, so he's lying about the project that everybody knew about. The president also brought up Cohen's written submission to Congress regarding the Trump Tower Moscow project. So here's the story. Go back, look at the paper that Michael Cohen wrote before he testified in the House and or Senate. I ta- it talked about this position. The president added, even if Cohen was right, it doesn't matter because I was allowed to do whatever I wanted to do during the campaign. In light of the president's public statements following Cohen's guilty plea, he decided not to do the project. This office again sought information from the president about whether he pertained in participated in any discussions about the project being abandoned or no longer pursued. 
including when he decided not to do the project, who he spoke to about that decision, and what motivated that decision. The office also, again, asked for the timing of the president's discussions with Cohen about Trump Tower Moscow and asked him to specify what period of the campaign he was involved in discussions concerning the project. In response to president's personal counsel declined to provide additional information from the president and stated that the president has fully answered the questions at issue. In the weeks following Cohen's plea and agreement to provide assistance to this office, the president repeatedly implied that Cohen family members were guilty of crimes. On December 3, 2018, after Cohen had, filled, had filed his sentencing memorandum, the president tweeted, Michael Cohen asked judge for no prison time. You mean he can do all of the terrible, unrelated to Trump things having to do with fraud, big loans, taxis, etc.? And I had to serve a long prison term. He makes up stories and, and to get a great and already reduced deal for himself and gets his wife and father-in-law who has the money off scot-free. He lied for this outcome and should, in my opinion, serve full and complete sentence. Redacted. Harm to an ongoing matter. On December 12th, 2018, Cohen was sentenced to three years of imprisonment. The next day, the president sent a series of tweets that said, I never directed Michael Cohen to break the law. Those charges are just agreed to by him in order to embarrass the president and get much reduced prison sentence, which he did, including the fact that his family was temporarily let off the hook. As a lawyer, Michael has a great liability to me. On December 16th, 2018, the president tweeted, Remember Michael Cohen only because a rat after the FBI did something which was absolutely unthinkable and unheard of until the witch hunt was illegally started? They broke into an attorney's office. Why didn't they break into the DNC and get the server? Or for Crookie Hillary's office? In January 2019, after the media reported that Cohen would provide public testimony in congressional hearing, the president made additional public comments suggesting that Cohen's family members had committed crimes. In an interview with Fox on January 12, 2019, the president was asked whether he was worried about Cohen's testimony and responded, in order to get his sentence reduced, Cohen says, I have an idea. I'll, uh, I'll tell, I'll get you some information on the president. Well, there is no information, but he should give all information because his father-in-law, because that was one that the people, the people want to look at because where does that money, where's that, that money's in the family. And I guess he didn't want to talk about his father-in-law. He's trying to get his sentence reduced. So it's a uh, pretty sad, pretty, pretty sad, you know, it's weak and it's very sad to watch a thing like that. On January 18th, 2019, the president tweeted, Kevin Cork at Fox News. Don't forget Michael Cohen has already been convicted of perjury and fraud, and recently as this week, the Wall Street Journal has suggested that he may have stolen tens of thousands of dollars, lying to reduce his jail time. Watch father-in-law. On January 23rd, 2019, Cohen postponed his congressional testimony, citing threats against his family. The next day, the president tweeted, So interesting that my bad lawyer, Michael Cohen, who sadly will not be testifying before Congress, is using the lawyer of crooked Hillary Clinton to represent him. Gee, how did that happen? 
Also in January 2019, Giuliani gave press interviews that appeared to confirm Cohen's account that the Trump Organization pursued the Trump Tower Moscow project well past January 2016. Giuliani stated that it is our understanding that discussions about Trump Tower Moscow project went on throughout 2016. Weren't a lot of them, but there were conversations. Can't be sure of the exact date, but the president can remember having conversations with him about it. The president also remembers, yeah, probably up, could be up to as far as October or November. In an interview with the New York Times, Giuliani quoted the president as saying that the discussions regarding the Trump Tower Moscow project were going on from day one, the, the day I announced, to the day I won. On January 21st, 2019, Giuliani issued a statement that said, My recent statements about discussions during the 2016 campaign between Michael Cohen and Dick candidate Donald Trump about a potential Trump Moscow project were hypothetical and not based on conversations I had with the president. For fuck's sake. Analysis. In analyzing the president's conduct related to Cohen, the following evidence um, is relevant to the elements of obstruction of justice. A. Obstructive act. We gathered evidence of the president's conduct related to, Cohen's, to Cohen on two issues. One, whether the president or others aided or participated in Cohen's false statements to Congress. And two, whether the president took actions that would have natural tendency to prevent Cohen from providing truthful information to the government. One. First, with regard to Cohen's false statements to Congress, while there is evidence described below that the president knew Cohen related false testimony to Congress about the trump Moscow project, the evidence available to us does not establish that the president directed or aided Cohen's false testimony. Cohen said that his statements to Congress followed a followed a party line that developed within the campaign to align the president's public statements distancing the president from Russia. Cohen also recalled that, in speaking with the president in advance of testifying, he made it clear that he would stay on message, which Cohen believed they both understood would require false testimony. But Cohen said that he and the president did not explicitly discuss whether Cohen's testimony about the Trump, Mo Trump Tower Moscow project would be or was false, and the president did not direct him to provide false testimony directly. Cohen also said he did not tell the president about the specifics of his planned testimony. During the time when his statement to Congress was being drafted and circulated to members of the JDA, Cohen did not speak directly to the president about the statement, but rather communicated with the president's personal counsel, as corroborated by phone records showing extensive communication between Cohen and the president's personal counsel before Cohen submitted his statement and when he testified before Congress. Cohen recalled that his discussions with the president's personal counsel on August 27, 2017, the day before Cohen's statement was submitted to Congress, Cohen said that there were more communications with Russia and more communications with candidate Trump than the statement reflected. Cohen recalled expressing some concern at the time. According to Cohen, the president's personal counsel, who did not have, who did not have firsthand knowledge of the project, responded by saying that there was no need to muddy the water, that it was unnecessary to include those details because the project did not take place, and that Cohen should keep his statement short and tight, not elaborate, stay on message, and not contradict the president. Cohen's recollection of the content of those conversations is consistent with direction about the substance of Cohen's draft statement that appeared to come from members of the JDA. For example, 
Cohen omitted any reference to his outreach to Russian government officials to set up a meeting between Trump and Putin during the United Nations General Assembly, and Cohen believed it was the decision of the JDA to delete the sentence. The building project led me to make limited contacts with Russian government officials. The president's personal counsel declined to provide us with his account of the conversations with Cohen, and there's no evidence available to us that indicates the president was aware of the information Cohen provided to the president's personal counsel. The president's conversations with his personal counsel were presumably um, protected by attorney-client privilege, and we did not seek to obtain the contents of any such communications. Well... The absence of evidence about the president and his counsel's conversations about the drafting of Cohen's statements <sighs> sorry, precludes us from assessing what, if any, role the president played. Second, we, this is number two, second, we considered whether the president took actions that would have the natural tendency to prevent Cohen from providing truthful information to criminal investigators or to Congress. Before Cohen began to cooperate with the government, the president publicly and privately urged Cohen to stay on message and not to flip. Cohen recalled the president's personal counsel telling him that he would not be protected so long as he did not he would be protected as long as he didn't go rogue. In the days and weeks that followed the April 2018 searches of Cohen's home and office, the president told reporters that Cohen was a good man and that he was a fine person and a, with a wonderful family who I've always liked and respected. Privately, the president told Cohen to hang in there and stay strong. People who were close to both Cohen and the president passed messages to Cohen that the president loves you, the boss loves you, and everybody knows the boss has your back. Throughout the president's personal counsel, the president, who also had previously told Cohen, thanks for what you do, after Cohen provided information to the media about payments to women that, according to Cohen, both Cohen and the president knew were false. At that time, the Trump Organization continued to pay Cohen's legal fees, which was important to Cohen. Cohen also recalled discussing the possibility of a pardon with the president's personal counsel, who told him to stay on message and everything would be fine. The president indicated in his public statements that a pardon had not been ruled out and also stated publicly that most people will flip if the government lets them out of trouble, but that he didn't see Michael doing that. After it was reported that Cohen intended to cooperate with the government, however, the president accused Cohen of making up stories in order to get himself out of an unrelated jam. Taxi cabs, maybe? Called Cohen a rat on multiple occasions, publicly suggested that Cohen's family members had committed crimes. The evidence concerning this sequence of events could support an interference that the president used in inducements of the form of positive messages in an effort to get Cohen not to cooperate and then turn to attacks and intimidation to deter the provision of informative information or undermine Cohen's credibility. Once Cohen began cooperating B nexus to an official proceeding, the president's relevant conduct towards Cohen occurred when the president knew the special counsel's office, Congress and U S attorney's office of the Southern district of New York were investigating Cohen's conduct. The president acknowledged through his public statements and tweets that Cohen potentially could cooperate with the government investigations. C. Intent In analyzing the president's intent and his actions towards Cohen as a potential witness, there is evidence that could support the interference that the president intended to discourage Cohen from cooperating with the government because Cohen's information would shed adverse light on the president's campaign period conduct and statements. 1. 
Cohen's false congressional testimony about the Trump Tower Moscow project was designed to minimize connections between the president and Russia to help limit the congressional and DOJ Russian investigations, a goal that was the president's interest, as reflected by the president's own statements. During and after the campaign, the president made repeated statements that he had no business in Russia and said that there were no deals that could happen in Russia because we've stayed away. As Cohen knew, and as he recalled communicating to the president during the campaign, Cohen's pursuit of the Trump Tower Moscow project cast doubt on the accuracy or completeness of those statements. In connections with his guilty plea, Cohen admitted that he had multiple conversations with candidate Trump to give him status updates about Trump Tower Moscow project, that the conversations continued through at least June 2016, and that he discussed with Trump possible travel to Russia to pursue the project. The conversations were not offhand, according to Cohen, because the project had the potential to be so lucrative. In addition, text messages to and from Cohen and other records further established that Cohen's efforts to advance the project did not end in January 2016, and that in May and June of 2016, Cohen was considering the timing for possible Russia trips by him and Trump in connection to the project. The evidence could support an interference that the president was aware of these facts at the time of the Cohen's false statements to Congress. Cohen discussed the project with the president in early 2017 following media inquiries. Cohen recalled that on September 20, 2017, the day after he was released to the public, his opening remarks to Congress, which said the project was terminated in January of 2016, the president's personal counsel told him the president was pleased um, with what Cohen had said about Trump Tower Moscow. And after Cohen's guilty plea, the president told reporters that he had ultimately decided not to do the project, which supports the interference that he remained aware of his own involvement in the project in the period during the campaign in which the project was being pursued. 2. The president's public remarks following Cohen's guilty plea also suggest that the president may have been concerned about what Cohen told investigators about the Trump Tower Moscow project. At the time the president submitted written answers and um, to questions from this office about the project and other subjects, the media had reported that Cohen was cooperating with the government, but Cohen had not yet pleaded guilty to making false statements to Congress. Accordingly, it was not publicly known what information about the project Cohen had provided to the government. In his written answers, the president did not provide details about the timing and substance of his discussions with Cohen about the project and gave no indication that he had decided to no longer pursue that project. Yet after Cohen pleaded guilty, the president publicly stated that he had personally made the decision to abandon the project. The president then declined to clarify the seeming discrepancy to our office or answer additional questions. The content and timing of the president's provision of information about his knowledge and actions regarding the Trump Tower Moscow project is evidence that the president may have been concerned about the information that Cohen could provide as a witness. 3. The president's concern about Cohen cooperating may have been directed at the Southern District of New York investigation into other aspects of the president's dealing with Cohen rather than the investigation of Trump Tower Moscow. There also is some evidence that the president's concern about Cohen cooperating was based on the president's stated belief that Cohen would provide false testimony against the president in an attempt to obtain a lesser sentence for his unrelated criminal conduct. The president tweeted that Manafort, unlike Cohen, refused to break and make up stories in order to get a deal. 
and after Cohen pleaded guilty to making false statements to Congress, the president said, What Cohen's trying to do is to get a reduced sentence. He's lying about a project that everybody knew about. But the president also appeared to defend the underlying conduct, saying, Even if Cohen was right, it doesn't matter because I was allowed to do whatever I wanted to do during the campaign. As described above, there is evidence that the president knew that Cohen had made false statements about the Trump Tower Moscow project and that Cohen did so to protect the president and minimize the president's connections to Russia during the campaign. 4. Finally, the president's statements insinuating that members of of Cohen's family committed crimes after Cohen began cooperating with the government could be viewed as an effort to retaliate against Cohen and chill further testimony adverse to the president by Cohen and others. It's possible that the president believes it's reflected in his tweets. (laughs) It It is possible to believe that... It is possible that the president believes, as is reflected in his tweets, that Cohen made up stories in order to get a deal for himself and get his wife and father-in-law off scot-free. It also is possible that the president's mention of Cohen's wife and father-in-law were not intended to affect Cohen as a witness, but but rather as were part of a public relations strategy aimed at discrediting Cohen and deflecting information away from the president on Cohen-related matters. But the president's suggestion that Cohen's family members committed crimes happened more than once, and inc- um, including just before Cohen was sentenced. At the same time, the president stated that Cohen should, in my opinion, serve a full and complete sentence. And again, just before Cohen was scheduled to testify before Congress, the timing of the statement supports an interference that they were intended, at least in part, to discourage Cohen from further cooperation. L. Overarching Factual Issues Although this report does not contain a traditional prosecution decision or declination decision, the evidence supports several general conclusions relevant to analysis of the facts concerning the President's course of conduct. 1. Three features of this case render it atypical compared to the Heartland Obstruction of Justice prosecutions brought by the Justice Department. First, the conduct involved actions by the President. Some of the conduct did not implicate the president's constitutional authority and raises garden variety obstruction of justice issues. Other events were investigated, however, drew upon the president's Article II authority, which raised constitutional issues that we addressed in Volume 2, Section 3B. A factual analysis of that conduct would have to take into account both the president's acts were were, um, facially lawful and that his position as head of the executive branch provides him with unique and powerful means of influence in official proceedings, subordinate officers, and potential witnesses. Second, any many obstruction cases involve the attempted or actual cover-up of an underlying crime. Personal criminal conduct can furnish strong evidence that the individual had an improper obstructive purpose. But proof of such a crime is not an element of an obstruction offense. Obstruction of justice can be motivated by a desire to protect non-criminal personal interests, to protect against investigations where underlying criminal liability falls into gray areas, or to avoid personal embarrassment. The injury to the integrity of the justice system is the same regardless of whether a person committed an underlying wrong. In this investigation, the evidence does not establish that the president was involved in an underlying crime related to the Russian election interference.
But the evidence does point to a range of other possible personal motives animating the president's conduct. These include concerns that continued investigation would call into question the legitimacy of his election and potential uncertainty about whether certain events, such as advance notice of WikiLeaks release of hacked information of the June 9, 2016 meeting between senior campaign um, officials and Russians, could be seen as criminal activity by the president, his campaign, or his family. Third, many of the president's acts directed at witnesses, including discouragement of cooperation with the government and suggestions of possible future pardons, occurred in public view. While it may be more difficult to establish that public-facing acts were motivated by a corrupt intent, the president's power to influence actions, persons, and events is enhanced by his unique ability to attract attention through the use of mass communications. And no principle of law excludes public acts from the scope of obstruction statutes. If the likely effect of the acts is to intimidate witnesses or alter their testimony, the justice, seems integ the justice system's integrity is equally threatened. 2. Although the events we investigated involved discrete acts, like the President's statement to Comey about the Flynn investigation, his termination of Comey, and his efforts to remove the special counsel, it is important to view the President's pattern of conduct as a whole. That pattern sheds light on nature of the president's acts and interferences that can be drawn out about his intent. A. Our investigation found multiple facts by the president that were capable of exerting undue influence over law enforcement investigations, including the, including the Russian interference and obstruction investigations. The incidents were often carried out through one-on-one -on -one meetings in which the president sought to use his official power outside of usual channels. These actions ranged from efforts to remove the special counsel and to reverse the effects of the attorney general's recusal, to the attempted use of the official power to limit the scope of the investigation, to direct, the in, to direct and indirect contacts with witnesses with the potential to influence their testimony. Viewing the acts collectively can help to illuminate their significance. For example, the president's direction to McGahn to have a special counsel removed was followed, followed almost immediately by his direction to Lewandowski to tell the attorney general to limit the scope of the Russia investigation to prospective election interference only. A temporal connection that suggests that both acts were taken with related purpose with respect to an investigation. The president's efforts to influence the investigation were mostly unsuccessful, but that is largely because the persons who surrounded the president declined to carry out orders or accede to his requests. Comey did not end the investigation of Flynn, which ultimately resulted in Flynn's prosecution and conviction for lying to the FBI. McGahn didn't tell the acting attorney general that the special counsel must be removed, but was instead prepared to resign over the president's order. Lewandowski and Dearborn did not deliver the president's message to Sessions that he should confine the Russia investigation to future election meddling only. And McGahn refused to recede from his recollections about the events surrounding the president's direction to have the special counsel removed, despite the president's multiple demands that he do so. Consistent with that pattern, the evidence we obtained would not support potential obstruction charges against the president's aides and associates beyond those already filed. B. 
And considering the full scope of the conduct we investigated, the president's actions can be divided into two distinct phases reflecting a possible shift in the president's motives. In the first phase, before the president fired Comey, the president had been assured that the FBI would not um, open an investigation of him personally. The president deemed it critically important to make public that he was not under investigation, and he included that information in his termination letter to Comey after other efforts to have that information disclosed were unsuccessful. Soon after he fired Comey, however, the president became aware that investigators were conducting the obstruction of justice inquiry into his own conduct. That awareness marked a significant change in the president's conduct and the start of a second phase of action. The president launched public attacks on the investigation and individuals involved in it who could possess evidence adverse to the president, while in private, the president engaged in a series of targeted efforts to control the investigation. For instance, the president attempted to remove the special counsel. He sought to have Attorney General Sessions unrecuse himself and to limit the investigation. He sought to prevent public disclosure of information about the June 9, 2016 meeting between the Russians and the campaign officials. And he used public forums to attack potential witnesses who might, other ad who might offer adverse information to praise witnesses who declined to cooperate with the government. Judgment about the nature of the president's motives during each phase would be informed by the totality of the evidence. 3. Legal Defenses to the Application of Obstruction of Justice Statutes to the President the president's personal counsel has written to this office to advance statutory and constitutional defenses to the potential application of the obstruction of justice statutes to the president's conduct. As a statutory matter, the president's counsel has argued that a core obstruction of justice statute, 18 U.S.C. 1512 C2, does not cover the president's actions. As a constitutional matter, the President's counsel argued that the President cannot obstruct justice by exercising his constitutional authority to close Department of Justice investigations or terminate the FBI director. Under that view, any statute that restricts the President's exercise of those powers would impermissibly intrude on the President's constitutional role. The President's counsel has conceded that the President may be subject to criminal laws that do not directly involve exercises of his Article II authority, such as laws prohibiting bribing witnesses or suborning perjury. But counsel has made a categorical argument that the President's exercise of his constitutional authority here to terminate an FBI director and to close investigations cannot constitutionally constitute obstruction of justice. In analyzing counsel's statutory arguments, we concluded that the President's proposed interpretation of Section 1512C2 is contrary to the litigating position that the Department of Justice and is not supported by principles of statutory construction. As for the constitutional arguments, we recognize that the Department of Justice and the courts have not definitively resolved these constitutional issues. We therefore analyzed the President's position through a framework of Supreme Court precedent addressing the separation of powers. Under that framework, we concluded Article II of the Constitution does not categorically and permanently immunize the President from potential liability for the conduct that we investigated. Rather, our an analysis led us to conclude that the obstruction of justice statutes can validly prohibit a President's corrupt efforts to use his official powers to curtail, end, or interfere with an investigation. A. Statutory defenses to the application of obstruction of justice provisions to conduct under investigation. 
The obstruction of justice statute most readily applicable in our investigation is 18 U.S.C. 1512C2. Section 1512C provides C. Whoever corruptly, one, alters, destroys, mutilates, or conceals a record, document, or other object to att- or attempts to do so with the intent to impair the object's integrity or availability for use in an official proceeding, or two, otherwise obstructs, influences, or impedes any official proceeding or attempts to do so, shall be fined under this title or imprisoned for no, not more than 20 years or both. The Department of Justice has taken the position that Section 1512C2 states a broad, independent, and unqualified prohibition on obstruction of justice. While defendants have argued that subsection C2 should be, should be read to cover only acts that would impair the availability or integrity of evidence because that is subsection C1's focus, strong arguments weigh against that proposed limitation. The text of Section 1512C2 confirms that its sweep is not tethered to Section 1512C1. Courts have so interpreted it. Its history is not, does not counsel otherwise, and no principle of statutory construction dictates a contrary view. On its face, therefore, Section 1512C2 applies to all corrupt means of obstructing a proceeding pending or contemplated, including by pro- improper exercises of official power. In addition, other statutory provisions that are potentially applicable to certain conduct we investigated broadly prohibit obstruction of proceedings that are pending before courts, grand juries, and Congress. Congress has also specifically prohibited, prohibited witness tampering. 1. The text of Section 1512C2 prohibits a broad range of obstructive acts. Several textual features of Section 1512C2 support the conclusion uh, that the provision broadly prohibits corrupt means of obstructing justice and is not limited by the more specific prohibitions in Section 1512C1, which focus on evidence impairment. First, the text of Section 1512C2 is unqualified. It reaches acts that obstruct influence or impede any official proceeding when when committed corruptly. Nothing in Section 1512C2's text limits the provision to acts that would impair the integrity or availability of evidence for use in an official proceeding. In contrast, Section 1512C1 explicitly includes the requirement that the defendant act with the intent to impair or object integrity or availability for the use of an official proceeding, a requirement that Congress also included in two other sections of Section 1512. But no comparable intent or conduct element focused on evidence impairment appears in Section 1512C2. The intent element in Section 1512C2 comes from the word corruptly. And the conduct element in Section 1512C2 is obstructing, influencing, or impeding a proceeding. Congress is presumed to have acted intentionally in um, disparate inclusion and exclusion of evidence impairment language. Second, the structure of Section 1512 supports the conclusion that Section 1512C2 defines an independent offense. Section 1512C2 delineates the complete crime with the different elements from Section 1512C1. And each subsection of 1512C contains its own attempt prohibition, underscoring that they are independent prohibition. 
The two subsections of section 1512C are connected by the conjunction or, indicating that each provides an alternative basis for criminal liability. See Lofgren, 573 U.S. at 357. Original use of or is almost always disjunctive. That is, the words it connects are to be given separate meanings. In Lofgren, for example, the Supreme Court relied on the use of the word or to hold that adjacent to and overlapping subsections of the bank fraud statute. 18 U.S.C. 1344 state distinct offenses that subsection 1344-2 therefore should not be interpreted to contain an additional element specified only in subsection 1344-1. And here, as in Lofgren section 1512-C's two clauses have separate numbers, line breaks before, between, and after them, an equivalent indentation, thus placing the clauses visually on an equal footing and indicating that they have separate meanings. Third, the introductory word otherwise in section 1512C2 signals that the provision covers obstructive acts that are different from those listed in section 1512C1. See Black's Law Dictionary 1101, 6th edition, 1990. Otherwise means in a different manner, in another way, or in other ways. See also American Heritage College Dictionary Online. One, in another way, differently. Two, under other circumstances. <laughs> See also Gooch versus United States, 297 U.S. 124, 128, 1936, characterizing otherwise as a broad term and holding that a statutory prohibition on kidnapping for ransom or reward or otherwise is not limited by the word ransom and reward to kidnapping for uh, pecuniary benefits. Colossos versus the United States, 368F3D190202D circa 2004, construing otherwise in 28 USC 24661C to reach to reach beyond the specific examples listed in prior subsections, thereby covering the myriad means that human ingenuity might devise to permit a person to avoid the jurisdiction of court. Begay versus United States, 553 U.S. 137, 144, 2006, recognizing that otherwise is defined to mean in a different way or manner, and holding that the word otherwise introducing the residual clause in the Armed Career Criminal Act, 18 U.S.C. 924 E2B2, can but need not necessarily refer to a crime that is similar to the listed examples in some respects, but different in others. The purpose of the word otherwise in section 1512c2 is therefore to clarify that the provision covers obstructive acts other than the destruction of physical evidence with the intent to impair its integrity or availability, which is the conduct addressed in section 1512c1. The word otherwise does not signal that section 1512c2 has less breadth in covering obstructive conduct than the language of, that the provision implies. Ugh. Two, judicial decisions support a broad reading of sections 1512c2. Courts have not limited section 1512c2 to conduct that impairs evidence, but instead have read it to cover obstructive acts in any form. As one court explained, this expansive subsection operates as a catch-all to cover otherwise obstructive behavior that might not, might not constitute a more specific offense like document destruction, which is listed in C1.
For example, in the United States versus Ring, the court rejected the argument that 1512C2's reference to conduct that otherwise obstructs, influences, or impedes any official proceeding is limited to conduct that's similar to the type of conduct prescribed by Section C1, subsection C1. Namely, conduct that impairs the integrity or availability of records, documents, or other objects for use in an official proceeding. The court explained that the meaning of, meaning of Section 1512C2 is plain on its face, and courts have upheld convictions under Section 1512C2 that did not involve evidence impairment, but instead resulted from conduct that more broadly thwarted arrests or investigations. See United States versus Martinez, a police officer tipped off suspects about issuance of arrest warrants before outstanding warrants could be executed, thereby potentially interfering with an ongoing grand jury proceeding. Or the United States versus Phillips, um, defendant disclosed identity of an undercover officer, thus preventing him from making controlled purchases of methamphetamine dealers. Those cases illustrate that Section 1512C2 applies to corrupt acts, including by official, public officials, that frustrate the commencement of, or conduct of a proceeding, and not just acts that make evidence unavailable or impair its integrity. Section 1512C2's breadth is reinforced by the similarity of its language to the Omnibus Clause of 18 U.S.C. 1503, which covers anyone who corruptly obstructs or impedes or endeavors to influence, obstruct, or impede the due administration of justice. That clause of Section 1503 follows two more specific clauses that protect jurors, judges, and court officers. The Omnibus Clause has nevertheless been construed to be far more general in scope than the earlier clauses of the statute. United States versus Aguilar, the Omnibus Clause is essentially a catch-all provision which generally prohibits conduct that interferes with the due administration of justice. Or the United States versus Brinson where courts have accordingly given it a non-restrictive reading, or United States versus Kumar, collecting cases from the 3rd, 4th, 6th, 7th, and 11th circuits. As one court explained, the Omnibus Clause prohibits acts that are similar in result rather than manner to the conduct described in the first part of the statute. While the specific clauses forbid certain means of obstructing justice, the Omnibus Clause aims at obstruction of justice itself, regardless of the means of used to reach that result. Given the similarity of Section 1512C2 to Section 1503's Omnibus Clause, Congress would have expected Section 1512C2 to cover acts that produced a similar result to the evidence impairment provisions i.e. the result of obstructing justice, rather than just covering only acts that were similar in manner. Read this way, Section 1512C2 serves a distinct function in the Federal Obstruction of Justice Statutes. It captures corrupt conduct rather than document destruction, and um, that has the natural tendency to obstruct contemplated as well as pending proceedings. Section 1512C2 overlaps with other obstruction statutes, but it does not render them superfluous. Section 1503, for example, which covers pending grand jury and judicial proceedings, and Section 1505, which covers pending administrative and congressional proceedings, reach endeavors to influence, obstruct, or impede the proceedings, a broader test for, for inchote violations than Section 15C2's attempt standards, which requires a substantial step towards a completed offense.
See United States versus Sampson, 898F3D287-302, efforts to witness tamper that rise to the level of an endeavor, yet fall short of an attempt, cannot be prosecuted under Section 1512. United States vs. Leisure, 844 F2D 1347, 1366 through 1367, collecting cases recognizing the difference between the endeavor and attempt standards. And 18 U.S.C. 1519, which prohibits destruction of documents or records in contemplation of an investigation or proceedings, does not require the nexus showing under Aguilar, which Section 1512C2 demands. The requisite knowledge and intent under Section 1519 can be present even if the accused lacks knowledge that he is likely to succeed in obstructing the matter. United States versus Gray, 642F3D371-376-377. In enacting Section 1519, Congress rejected any requirement the government prove a link between the defendant's conduct and an imminent or, proceeding, or pending official proceeding. The existence of even substantial overlap is not uncommon in criminal statutes. The fact that there is now some overlap between 1503 and 1512 is no more intolerable than the fact that there is some overlap between the Omnibus Clause of 1503 and other provisions of the 1503 itself. But given that Sections 1503, 1505, and 1519 each reach conduct that Section 1512C2 does not, the overlap provides no reason to give Section 1512C2 an artificially, an artificially limited construction. <laughs> Jesus. 3. The legislative history in Section 1512C2 does not justify narrowing its text. Given the straightforward statutory command in Section 1512C2, there's no reason to resort to legislative history. In any event, the legislative history of Section 1512C2 is not a reason to impose extra-textual extra limitations on its reach. Congress enacted Section 1512C2 as part of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act of 2002. The relevant section of the statute was entitled Tampering with a Record or Otherwise Impeding an Official Proceeding. That title indicates that Congress intended the two clauses to have independent effect. Section 1512C was added as a floor amendment to the Senate in the Senate and explained as a closing a certain loophole with respect to document shredding. But those explanations do not limit the inactive text. It's all, it's, it is not the law that a statute can have no effects which are not explicitly mentioned in its legislative history. Even if Congress did not foresee all of the applications of the statute, that is no reason not to give the statutory text a fair reading. The floor statements thus cannot detract from the meaning of, of the enacted text. Floor statements from two senators cannot amend the clear and unambiguous language of a statute. We see no reason to give greater weight to the views of two senators than the collective votes of both houses, which are memorialized in an unambiguous statutory text. That principle has particular force where one of the proponents of the amendment in section 1512 introduced his remarks as only briefly elaborating on some of the specific provisions contained in the bill. 
Indeed, the language Congress used in Section 1512C2 prohibiting corruptly obstructing, influencing, or impeding any official proceeding or attempting to do so parallels a provision that Congress considered years earlier in a bill designed to strengthen protections against witness tampering and obstruction of justice. While the earlier provision is not a direct antecedent of Section 1512C2, Congress's understanding of the broad scope of the earlier provision is instructive. Recognizing that the proper administration of justice may be impeded or thwarted by a variety of corrupt methods, limited only by the imagination of the criminally inclined, Congress considered a bill that would have amended Section 1512 by making it a crime when a person corruptly influences, obstructs, or impedes the enforcement and prosecution of federal law, administration of a law under which an official proceeding is being or may be conducted, or the exercise of a federal legislative power of inquiry. The Senate committee explained that the purpose of preventing an obstruction of or miscarriage of justice cannot be fully carried out by a single enumeration of the commonly prosecuted obstruction offenses. There must be protection against the rare type of conduct that is the product of the inventive criminal mind and which also thwarts justice. The report gave examples of conduct actually prosecuted under the current residual clause, which would probably not be covered in this series of provisions without a residual clause. One prominent example was a conspiracy to cover up the Watergate burglary <laughs> and its aftermath by having a central intelligence agency linked to sink, seek to interfere with an ongoing FBI investigation of the burglary. The report therefore indicates a congressional awareness not only that residual clause language resembling section 15C 12C2 broadly covers a wide variety of obstructive conduct, but also that such language reaches the improper use of governmental processes to obstruct justice, specifically the Watergate cover-up orchestrated by White House officials, including the president himself. Number four. General principles of statutory construction do not suggest that Section 1512C2 is incapable of the conduct in this investigation. The requirement of fair warning in criminal law, the interest in avoiding due process concerns in potentially vague statutes, and the rule of lenity do not justify narrowing the reach of Section 1512C2's text. A. As with other criminal, criminal laws, the Supreme Court has exercised restraint in interpreting obstruction of justice provisions, both out of respect for Congress's role in defining crimes and in the interest of providing individuals with fair warning of what a criminal statute prohibits. In several obstruction cases, the court has imposed a nexus test that requires that the wrongful conduct targeted by the provision be sufficiently connected to an official proceeding to ensure the requisite culpability. Section 1512C2 has been interpreted to require a similar nexus. To satisfy the nexus requirement, the government must show as an objective matter that the defendant acted in a manner that's likely to obstruct justice, such that the statute excludes defendants who have an evil purpose but use means that would only unnaturally and improbably be successful. The endeavor must have the natural and probable effect of interfering with the due administration of justice. The government must also show as a subjective matter the act that the actor contemplated a particular foreseeable proceeding. 
Those requirements alleviate fair warning concerns by ensuring that obstructive conduct has a close enough connection to existing or future proceedings to implicate the dangers targeted by the obstruction laws and that the individual actually has the obstructive result in mind. B. Courts also seek to construe statutes to avoid due process vagueness concerns. Vagueness doctrine requires that a statute define a crime with sufficient def- def- definiteness that ordinary people can understand what conduct is prohibited and in a manner that does not encourage arbitrary and discriminatory enforcement. The obstruction statutes require requirement of acting corruptly satisfies that test. Acting corruptly within the meaning of section 1512c2 means acting with an improper purpose and to engage in conduct knowingly and dishonestly with the specific intent to subvert, impede, or obstruct the relevant proceedings. The majority opinion in Aguilar did not address the defendant's vagueness challenge of the word corruptly, 515 U.S. at 601, but Justice Scalia's separate opinion did reach that issue and would have rejected the challenge. Statutory language need not be colloquial, Justice Scalia explained, and the term corruptly in criminal laws has a long-standing and well-accepted meaning. It denotes an act done with an intent to give some advantage inconsistent with official duty and the rights of others. Justice Scalia added that in the context of obstructing jury proceedings, any claim of ignorance of wrongdoing is incredible. Lower courts have also rejected vagueness challenges to the word corruptly. This well-established intent standard precludes the need to limit the obstruction statutes to only certain kinds of inherently wrongful conduct. C. Finally, the rule of lenity does not justify treating section 1512c2 as a prohibition on evidence impairment as opposed to an omnibus clause. The rule of lenity is an interpretive principle that resolves ambiguity in criminal law in favor of the less severe construction. As the court has repeatedly emphasized, however, the rule of lenity applies only if, after considering the text structure history and purpose, there remains a grievous ambiguity or uncertainty in the statute which such that the court must simply guess as to what Congress intended. The rule has been cited, for example, in adopting a narrow meaning of tangible object. In an obstruction statute, when the, pro- when the prohibition's title, history, and list of pro- prohibited acts indicated a focus on destruction of records. Interpreting tangible object in the phrase record, doc- record document or tangible object in 18 U.S.C. 1519 to mean an item capable of recording or preserving information. Here, as discussed above, the text structure and history of Section 1512c2 leaves no grievous ambiguity about the statute's meaning. Section 1512c2 defines a structurally independent general prohibition on obstruction of official proceedings. 5. Other obstruction statutes might apply to the conduct in this investigation. Regardless whether Section 1512c2 covers all corrupt acts that obstruct, influence, or impede pending or contemplated proceedings, other statutes would apply to such conduct in pending proceedings, provided that the remaining statutory elements are satisfied. As discussed above, the Omnibus Clause in 18 U.S.C. 1503a applies generally to obstruction of pending judicial and grand proceedings, noting that the clause is far more general in scope than preceding provisions. 
Section 1503A's protections extend to witness tampering and to other obstructive conduct that has a nexus to pending proceedings. Collecting cases from eight circuits holding that Section 1503 covers witness-related obstructive conduct and combining prior circuit authority. And Section 1505 broadly criminalizes obstructive conduct aimed at pending agency and congressional proceedings. Finally, 18 U.S.C. 1512b3 criminalizes tampering with witnesses to prevent the communication of information about a crime to law enforcement. The nexus inquiry articulated in Aguilar that an individual is knowledge that his actions are likely to to affect the judicial proceeding does not apply in Section 1512b3. The nexus inquiry turns instead to the actor's intent to prevent communications to a federal law enforcement official. In sum, in light of the breadth of Section 1512c2 and the other obstruction statutes, an argument that the conduct at issue in the investigation falls outside the scope of obstruction of justice laws lacks merit. B. Constitutional defenses to applying obstruction of justice statutes to presidential conduct. The president has broad discretion to direct criminal investigations. The Constitution vests the executive power in the president and enjoins enjoins him to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. Those powers and duties form a foundation of prosecutorial discretion. Attorney General and United States attorneys have this latitude because they are designated by statute as the president's delegates to help him discharge his constitutional responsibility to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. The President also has authority to appoint officers of the United States and to remove those whom he has appointed, such as U.S. Constitution Article 2, Section 2, Clause 2, grant an authority to the President to appoint all officers with the advice and consent of the Senate, but providing, providing that Congress may vest the appointment of inferior officers in the President alone, the heads of departments, or the courts of law. Although the President has broad authority under Article 2, that authority coexists with Congress's Article 1 power to enact laws that protect congressional proceedings, federal investigations, the courts, and grand juries against corrupt efforts to undermine their functions. Usually, those constitutional powers function in harmony, with the President enforcing the criminal laws under Article 2 to protect against corrupt obstructive acts. But when the president's official actions come into conflict with the prohibitions and the obstruction statutes, any constitutional tension is reconciled through separation of powers analysis. The president's counsel has argued that the president's exercise of his constitutional authority to terminate the FBI director and to close investigations cannot constitutionally constitute obstruction of justice. As noted above, no Department of Justice position or Supreme Court precedent directly resolved this issue. We did not find counsel's contention, however, to accord with our reading of the Supreme Court authority addressing separation of powers issues. Applying the court's framework for analysis, we concluded that Congress can can validly regulate the president's exercise of official duties to prohibit actions motivated by a corrupt intent to obstruct justice. The limited effect on presidential power that results from the restriction would not, inter- would not impermissibly undermine the president's ability to perform his Article II functions. 1. The requirement of a clear statement to apply statutes to presidential conduct does not limit the obstruction statutes. 
Before addressing Article 2 issues directly, we consider one threshold statutory construction principle that is unique to the presidency. The principle that general statutes must be read as not applying to the president if they do not expressly apply where application would arguably limit the president's constitutional role. This clear statement rule has its, has its source in two principles. Statutes should be construed to avoid serious constitutional questions, and Congress should not be assumed to have altered the constitutional separation of powers without clear assurance that it intended that result. The Supreme Court has applied that, uh, that clear statement rule in several ways. In one leading case, the court construed the, the Administrative Procedure Act 5 U.S.C. Section 701 um, not to apply to judicial review of presidential action. The court explained that it would require an express statement by Congress before assuming it intended the president's performance of his statutory duties to be reviewed for abuse of discretion. In another case, the court interpreted the word utilized in the Federal Advisory Committee Act to apply only to the use of advisory committees established directly or indirectly by the government, thereby excluding the American Bar Association's advice to the Department of Justice about federal judicial candidates. The court explained that the broader interpretation of the term utilized in FACA would, fa would raise concerns whether the statute infringed unduly on the president's Article II power to nominate federal judges and violated the doctrine of separation of powers. Another case found that an established canon of statutory construction applied with special force to provisions that would, that would impinge on the president's foreign affairs powers if construed broadly. The Department of Justice has relied on this clear statement principle to interpret certain statutes not as applying to the president at all, similar to the approach taken in Franklin. Other OLC opinions interpret statutory text not to apply to certain presidential or executive actions because of constitutional concerns. But the OLC has also recognized that this clear statement rule does not apply with respect to a statute that raises no separation of powers questions were it to be applied to the president, such as the federal bribery statute. OLC explained that application of Section 201 raises no separation of powers question, let alone a serious one, because the Constitution confers no power in the President to receive bribes. In support of that conclusion, OLC noted constitutional provisions that forbid increases in the President's compensation while in office, which is what a bribe would function to do and the express constitutional power of Congress to impeach and convict a president for bribery. Under OLC's analysis, Congress can permissibly criminalize certain obstructive conduct by the president, such as suborning perjury, intimidating witnesses, or fabricating evidence, because those provisions, uh, prohibitions raise no separation of powers questions. The Constitution does not authorize the President to engage in such conduct, and those actions would transgress the President's duty to take care of the laws be faithfully executed. In view of those clearly permissible applications of the obstruction statutes to the President, Franklin's holding that the President is entirely excluded from the statute absent a clear statement would not apply in this context. A more limited application of a clear statement rule to exclude from the obstruction statutes only certain acts by the president. 
For example, removing prosecutors or ending investigations for corrupt reasons would be difficult to implement as a matter of statutory interpretation. It's not obvious how a clear statement rule would apply to an omnibus provision like Section 1512C2 to exclude corruptly motivated obstructive acts only when carried out by the President's conduct of office. No statutory term could easily bear that specialized meaning. For example, the word corruptly has a well-established meaning that does not exclude exercises of official power for corrupt ends. Indeed, an established definition states that corruptly means with an intent to secure an improbable advantage, and it would be contrary to ordinary rules of to statutory construction to adopt unconventional meaning of a statutory term only when applied to the president. Nor could such an exclusion draw on a separate and established background interpretive presumption, such as the presumption against extraterritorially applied in sale. The principle... Uh, that courts will construe a statute to avoid serious constitutional questions is not a license for the judiciary to rewrite languages enacted by the legislature. It is one thing to acknowledge and accept well-defined or even newly enunciated generally applicable background principles of assumed legislative intent. It is quite another to espouse the broad proposition that criminal statutes do not have to be read as broadly as they're written, but are subject to a case-by-case exception. When the proposed construction would thus function as an extra-textual limit on a statute's compass, thereby preventing the statute from applying to a host of cases falling within its clear terms, it's doubtful that the construction would reflect Congress's intent. That is particularly so with respect to obstruction statutes, which have been given a broad and all-inclusive meaning. Accordingly, since no established principle of interpretation would exclude the presidential conduct we've investigated from statutes such as Section 1503, 1505, 1512B, and 1512C2, we proceed to examine the separation of powers issue that could be raised as an Article II defense to the application of those statutes. 2. Separation of powers principles support the conclusion that Congress may validly prohibit corrupt obstructive acts carried out through the President's official powers. When Congress imposes a limitation on the exercise of Article II powers, the limitations validly depend on whether the measure disrupts the balance between the coordinate branches. Even when a branch does not arrogate power to itself, the separation of powers doctrine requires that a branch not impair another in the performance of its constitutional duties. The separation of powers does not mean, however, that the branches ought to have no partial agency in or no control over the acts of each other. In this context, a balancing test applies to assess separation of powers issues. Applying that test here, we concluded that Congress can validly make obstruction of justice statutes applicable to corruptly motivated official acts of the President without impermissibly undermining its Article II functions. A. The Supreme Court's separation of powers balancing test applies in this context. A congressionally opposed limitation on presidential actions is assessed to determine the extent to which it prevents the executive branch from accomplishing its constitutionally assigned functions, and if the potential for disruption is present, whether that impact is justified by an overriding need to promote objectives within the constitutional authority of Congress. That balancing test applies to a congressional regulation of presidential power through the obstruction of justice laws. 
When an Article II power has not been explicitly assigned by the text of the Constitution to be within the sole province of the President, but rather was thought to be encompassed within the general grant to the President of the Executive Power, the Court has balanced competing constitutional considerations. As Justice Kennedy noted in Public Citizen, the court has applied a balancing test to restrictions on the president's power to remove executive officers, a power that is not conferred by any explicit provision in the text of the Constitution, as is the appointment power, but rather is inferred to be a necessary part of the grant of the executive power. Consistent with that statement, Morrison sustained that a good cause limitation on the removal of an inferior officer with defined prosecutorial responsibilities after determining that the limitation did not impermissibly undermine the president's ability to perform his Article II functions. The court has also evaluated other general executive power claims through the balancing test. For example, the court evaluated the president's claim of an absolute privilege for the presidential communications about his official acts by balancing that interest against the judicial branch's need for evidence in a criminal case. The court has also upheld a law that provided for archival per access the presidential records, despite a claim of absolute presidential privilege over the records. The analysis in those cases supports applying a balancing test to assess the constitutionality of applying the obstruction of justice statutes to presidential exercises of executive power. Only in a few instances has the court applied a different framework. When the president's power is both exclusive and conclusive on the issue, Congress is precluded from regulating its exercise. In Zivotofsky, for example, the court ruled that Justice Jackson's familiar tripartite framework in Youngston's Sheet and Tubeco versus Sawyer and held that the president's authority to recognize foreign nations is exclusive. But even when a power is exclusive... Congress's powers and a central role in making laws give it substantial authority regarding many of the policy determinations that proceed and follow the President's Act. For example, although the President's power to grant pardons is exclusive and not subject to congressional regulation, Congress has the authority to prohibit the corrupt use of anything of value to influence the testimony of another person in a judicial, congressional, or agency proceeding. 18 U.S.C. 201b3, which would include the offer or promise of a pardon to induce a person to testify falsely or not to testify at all. The offer of a pardon would precede the act of pardoning and thus be within Congress's power to regulate even if the pardon itself is not. Just as the speech or debate clause in U.S. Constitutional Article 1, Section 6, Clause 1 absolutely protects legislative acts, but not the legislators taking or agreeing to take money for a promise to act in a certain way, for it is taking a bribe, not performance of the illicit compact that is criminal act. The promise of a pardon to corruptly influence testimony would not be a constitutionally immunized act. The application of obstruction of statutes is such promises, therefore, would raise no serious separation of powers issue. B. The effect of obstruction of justice statutes on the president's capacity to perform his Article II responsibilities is limited. 
Under the Supreme Court's balancing test for analyzing separation of powers issues, the first task is to assess the degree to which the applying obstruction of justice statutes to presidential actions affects the president's ability to carry out his Article II responsibilities. As discussed above, applying obstruction of justice statutes to presidential conduct that does not involve the president's conduct of office, such as influence in the testimony of witnesses, testimony of witnesses is constitutionally unproblematic. The president has no more right than other citizens to impede official proceedings by corruptly influencing witness testimony. The conduct would be equally improper whether it effectuated through direct efforts to produce false testimony or suppress the truth or through the actual threatened or promised use of official powers to, to achieve the same result. The president's action in curtailing criminal investigation or prosecutions or discharging law enforcement officials raises different questions. Each type of action involves the exercise of ex executive discretion in furtherance of the president's duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. Congress may not supplant the president's exercise of executive power to supervise prosecutions or to remove officers who occupy law enforcement positions. Congress cannot reserve for itself the power of removal of an officer charged with the execution of laws except by impeachment, because the structure of the Constitution does not permit Congress to execute the laws. This kind of congressional control over the execution of laws is constitutionally impermissible. Yet the obstruction of justice statutes do not aggrandize power in Congress or usurp the executive authority. Instead, they impose a discrete limitation on conduct only when it is taken when the corrupt intent to obstruct justice. The obstruction statutes thus would restrict presidential action only by prohibiting the president from acting to obstruct official proceedings for the improper use of protecting his own interests. The direct effect on the president's freedom of action would correspondingly be a limited one. The preclusion of corrupt official action is not a major intrusion on the Article II powers. For example, the proper supervision of criminal law is not demand freedom for the presidents to act as um, act with the intention of shielding himself from criminal punishment, avoiding financial liability, or preventing personal embarrassment. To the contrary, the statute that prohibits official action undertaken for such personal purposes furthers, rather than hinders, the impartial and even-handed administration of the law. And the Constitution does not mandate that the president have unfettered authority to direct investigations or prosecutions with no limits whatsoever in order to carry out his Article II functions. Congress may limit an agency's exercise of enforcement power if it wishes, either by setting substantive priorities or by otherwise circumscribing the agency's power to discriminate among issues of, or cases that it will pursue. To read the Article II powers of the president as providing an absolute privilege to withhold confidential communications from a criminal trial would upset the constitutional balance of a workable government and gravely impair the role of the courts under Article III. Nor must the president have unfettered authority to remove all executive branch officials involved in the execution of laws. The Constitution establishes that Congress has legislative authority to, to structure the executive branch by authorizing Congress to create executive departments or, and offer positions and to specify how inferior officers are appointed. While the president's removal power is an important means of ensuring that officers faithfully execute the law, Congress has a recognized authority to place certain limits on removal. The president's removal powers are at their zenith 
when respect to principal officers, that is, officers who must be appointed by the president who report to him directly. The president's exclusive and illimitable power of removal of those principal officers furthers the president's ability to ensure that laws are faithfully executed. Thus, there are some purely executive officials who must be removable by the president at will if he's able to accomplish this constitutional role. The president's cabinet offers must, officers must do this will. And the moment that he loses confidence in the intelligence, ability, judgment, or loyalty of any one of them, he must have the power to remove them without delay. Congress has the power to create independent agencies headed by principal officers removable only by good cause. In light of those constitutional precedents, it may be that the obstruction statutes could not be constitutionally applied to limit the removal of a cabinet officer such as the attorney general. In that context, at least absent circumstances showing that the president was clearly attempting to thwart accountability for personal conduct while evading ordinary political checks and balances, even the highly limited regulation to impose by the regulation imposed by the obstruction statutes could possibly intrude too deeply on the president's freedom to select and supervise the members of his cabinet. The removal of inferior officers, in contrast, need not necessarily be at the will of the president to fulfill his constitutionally assigned role in managing the executive branch. Inferior officers are officers whose work is directed and supervised at some level um, by other officers appointed by the president with the Senate's consent. The Supreme Court has long recognized Congress's authority to place for-cause limitations on the president's removal of inferior officers whose appointments may be vested in the head of a department. The constitutional authority in Congress to thus vest the appointment of inferior officers in the heads of departments implies authority to limit, restrict, and regulate the removal by such laws as the Congress may enact in relation to the officers so appointed. The category of inferior officers includes both the FBI director and the special counsel, which each of whom reports to the attorney general. Where the Constitution permits Congress to impose a good cause limitation on the removal of an executive branch officer, the Constitution should equally permit Congress to bar removal of the corrupt purpose for obstructing justice. Limiting the range of permissible reasons for removal to exclude a corrupt purpose imposes a lesser restraint on the president than requiring an affirmative showing of good cause. It follows that for such inferior officers, Congress may constitutionally restrict the president's removal authority if that authority was exercised for a corrupt purpose of obstruction of justice. And even if a particular inferior officer's position might be of such importance to the execution of the laws that the president must have at will removal authority, the obstruction of justice statutes could still be constitutionally applied to forbid removal for a corrupt reason. A narrow and discreet limitation on removal that precluded corrupt action would leave ample room for all other considerations, including disagreement over policy or loss of confidence in the officer's judgment or commitment. A corrupt purpose prohibition, therefore, would not undermine the president's ability to perform his Article II functions. Accordingly, because the separation of powers question is whether the removal 
restrictions are of such a nature that they impede the president's ability to perform his constitutional duty, a restriction on removing an inferior officer for a corrupt reason, a reason grounded in achieving personal rather than official ends does not seriously hinder the president's performance of his duties. The president retains broad latitude to supervise investigations and remove officials circumscribed in this context only by the requirement that he not act for corrupt personal purposes. C. Congress has power to protect congressional grand jury and judicial proceedings against corrupt acts from any source. Where a law imposes a burden on the president's performance of Article II functions, separation of powers analysis considers whether the statutory measure is justified by an overriding need to promote objectives within the constitutional authority of the United States. Here, Congress enacted the obstruction of justice statutes to protect, among other things, the integrity of its own proceedings, grand jury investigations, and federal criminal trials. Those objectives are within Congress's authority and serve strong governmental interests. 1. Congress has Article I authority to define generally applicable criminal law and apply it to all persons, including the President. Congress clearly has authority to protect its own legislative functions against corrupt efforts designed to impede, the, impede legitimate fact-gathering and lawmaking efforts. Congress also has authority to establish a system of federal courts, which includes the power to protect the judiciary against obstructive acts. The Congress shall have the power to con to constitute tribunals inferior to the Supreme Court and to make all laws sh which shall be necessary and proper for carrying out execution of the foregoing powers. The long lineage of the obstruction of justice statutes, which can be traced to at least 1831, attests to the necessity for that protection. 2. The Article III courts have an equally strong interest in being protected against obstructive acts, whatever their source. As the Supreme Court explained in the United States v. Nixon, a primary constitutional duty of the judicial branch is to do justice in criminal prosecutions. In Nixon, the court rejected the president's claim of absolute executive privilege because the allowance of the privilege to withhold evidence that is demonstrably relevant in a criminal trial would cut deeply into the guarantee of due process of law and gravely impair the basic function of the courts. As Nixon illustrates, the need to safeguard judicial integrity is a compelling constitutional interest. 3. Finally, the grand jury cannot achieve its constitutional purpose absent protection from the corrupt acts. Serious federal criminal charges generally reach the Article III courts based on an indictment issued by a grand jury. And the grand jury's function is enshrined in the Fifth Amendment. No person shall be held to answer for a serious crime unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury. The whole theory of the grand jury's function is that it belongs to no branch of the institutional government, serving as a kind of buffer or referee between the government and its people. If the grand jury were not protected against corrupt interference from all persons, its function as an independent charging body would be thwarted. And an impartial grand jury investigation to determine whether probable cause exists to indict is vital to the criminal justice process.
The final step in the constitutional balancing process is to assess whether the separation of powers doctrine permits Congress to take action within its constitutional authority, notwithstanding the potential impact on the Article II functions. In the case of the obstruction of justice statutes, our assessment of the weighing of interests leads us to conclude that Congress has the authority to impose the limited restrictions contained in those statutes on the President's official conduct to protect the integrity of important functions of other branches of the government. A general ban on corrupt action does not unduly intrude on the President's responsibility to, to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. To the contrary, the concept of faithful execution connotes the use of power in the interest of the public, not in the office holder's personal interest. And immunizing the president from the generally applicable criminal prohibition against corrupt obstruction of official proceedings would seriously impair Congress's power to enact laws to promote objectives within its constitutional authority. Accordingly, based on the analysis above, we were not persuaded by the argument that the president has blanket constitutional immunity to engage in acts that would corruptly obstruct justice through the exercise of otherwise valid Article II powers. 3. Ascertaining whether the president violated the obstruction statutes would not chill his performance of his Article II duties. Applying the obstruction of justice statutes to the president's official conduct would involve determining as a factual matter whether the, he engaged in an obstructive act, whether the act had been a nexus to official proceedings, and whether he has motivated by corrupt intent. But applying those standards to the president's official conduct should not hinder his ability to perform his Article II duties. Several safeguards would prevent a chilling effect the existence of settled legal standards, the presumption of regularity in prosecutorial actions, and the existence of evidentiary limitations on probing the president's motives. And historical experience confirms that no impermissible chill should exist. A. As an, as an initial matter, the term corruptly sets a demanding standard. It requires a concrete showing that the president acted with an intent to obtain an improper advantage for himself or someone else, inconsistent with the official duty and the rights of others. That standard parallels with the president's constitutional obligation to ensure the faithful execution of laws. And virtually everything that the president does in the routine conduct of office will have a clear governmental purpose and will not be contrary to his official duty. Accordingly, the president has no reason to be chilled in those actions because, in virtually all instances, there will be no credible basis for suspecting a corrupt personal motive. That point is illustrated by examples of conduct that would be and would not satisfy the stringent corrupt motive standard. Direct or indirect action by the president to end a criminal investigation into his own or his family member's conduct to protect against personal embarrassment or legal liability would constitute a core example of corruptly motivated conduct. So, too, would action to halt an enforcement proceeding that directly and adversely affected the president's financial interests for the purpose of protecting those interests. In those examples, official power is being used for the purpose of protecting the president's personal interests. In contrast, the president's actions to serve political or policy interests would not qualify as corrupt. The president's role as the head of the government necessarily requires him to take into account political factors in making policy decisions that affect law enforcement actions and proceedings. For instance, 
the president's decision to curtail the law enforcement investigation to avoid international friction would not implicate the obstruction of justice statutes. The criminal law does not seek to regulate the consideration of such political or policy factors in the conduct of government. And when legitimate interests animate the president's conduct, those interests will almost invariably be readily identifiable based on objective factors. Because the president's conduct in those instances will obviously fall outside the zone of obstruction law, no chilling concern should arise. B. There's also no reason to believe that investigations, let alone prosecutions, would occur except in highly unusual circumstances when a credible factual basis exists to believe that obstruction occurred. Prosecutorial action enjoys a presumption of regularity. Absent clear evidence to the contrary, courts presume that prosecutors have probably discharged their official duties. The presumption, the presumption of prosecutorial regularity would provide even greater protection to the president than exists in routine cases, given the prominence and sensitivity of any matter involving the president and the likelihood that such matters will be subject to thorough and careful review at the most senior levels of the Department of Justice. Under OLC's opinion that a sitting president is entitled to immunity from indictment, only a successor administration would be able to prosecute a former president. But that consideration does not suggest that a president would have any basis for fearing abusive investigations or prosecutions after leaving office. There are obvious political checks against initiating a baseless investigation or prosecution of a former president. And the Attorney General holds the power to conduct the criminal litigation of the United States government which provides a strong institutional safeguard against politicized investigations or prosecutions. These considerations distinguish the Supreme Court's holding in Nixon versus Fitzgerald that in part because inquiries into the president's motives would be highly intrusive, the president is absolutely immune from private civil damages actions based on his official conduct. As Fitzgerald recognized, there's a lesser public interest in actions for civil damages than, for example, in criminal prosecutions. And private actions are not subject to the institutional protections of an action under the supervision of the Attorney General and subject to a presumption of regularity. C. In the rare cases in which a substantial and credible basis justifies conducting an investigation of the president, the process of examining his motives to determine whether he acted for a corrupt purpose need not have a chilling effect. Ascertaining the president's motives would turn on any explanation he provided to justify his actions, the advice he received, the circumstances surrounding the actions, and the regularity or irregularity of the process he employed to make the decisions. But grand juries and courts would not have automatic access to confidential presidential communications on those matters. Rather, they could be presented in official proceedings only by showing a sufficient need. In any event, probing the president's intent to, in a criminal matter is unquestionably constitutional in at least one context. The offense of bribery turns on the corrupt intent to receive a thing of value in return for being influenced for an official action. There can be no serious argument against the president's potential criminal, criminal liability for bribery offenses, notwithstanding the need to ascertain his purpose and intent. D. 
Finally, history provides no reason to believe that any asserted chilling effect justifies exempting the president from the obstruction laws. As a historical matter, presidents have a very seldom been the subjects of grand jury investigations, and it's rare still for circumstances to raise even the possibility of a corrupt personal motive for arguably obstructive action through the president's use of official power. Accordingly, the president's conduct of, of office should not be chilled based on hypothetical concerns about a possible application of a corrupt motive standard in this context. In sum, contrary to the position taken by the president's counsel, we concluded that, in light of the Supreme Court precedent governing separation of powers issues, we had a valid basis for investigating the conduct at issue in this report. In our view, the application of obstruction statutes would not impermissibly burden the president's performance of his Article II function to supervise prosecutorial conduct or to remove inferior law enforcement officers. And the protection of the criminal justice system from corrupt acts by any person, including the president, accords with the fundamental principle of our government that no person in this country is so high that he's above the law. Number four, conclusion. Because we determined not to make a traditional prosecutorial judgment, we did not draw ultimate conclusions about the president's conduct. The evidence we obtained about the president's actions and intent presents difficult issues that would need to be resolved if we were making a traditional prosecutorial judgment. At the same time, if we had confidence after a thorough investigation of the facts that the president clearly did not commit obstruction of justice, we would so state. Based on the facts and the applicable legal standards, we are unable to reach that judgment. Accordingly, while this report does not conclude that the president committed a crime, it also does not exonerate him. Pod Bless Robert Muller, a translation for Texans, has been brought to you by the makers of Pod Bless Texas, featuring Kendall Scudder and Lillian Salerno. We appreciate all of you for getting through episode nine, something that neither of us thought was possible and something Lillian did not do. And so thank you for, for powerhousing through this. I hope that you... Um, appreciate the, 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 the amount of time that we put into this. Um, however, I walk away from this with some significant fears that our country is in great danger. I'm sure you can draw your own conclusions from reading this report, but thank you for taking your time uh, and for joining us. We'll see you soon on Pod Bless Texas. Y'all have a great night.